Welcome to Tales from the Waystone, the interlude we became. We are your hosts, Will and Phoenix. Let's get into it. Welcome to the interlude we became, episode three, Multiversal Emergent Theories of Consciousness. For this episode, we're going to be covering chapters six through eight of N.K. Jemison's The City We Became. So come along with us on our magical mystery tour of Lovecraftian New York City. All right, so before we get too much further, let's get the content warning out of the way. While this book is a lot of fun, it features frank discussions of race, gender, and sexuality in contemporary America from the perspective of marginalized communities. It's important stuff, like with a capital I, important stuff. And it is worth learning about. It also uses what famed Premier League broadcaster Arlo White would refer to as fruity language. If you can handle that, we hope that you give it a listen. As always, we assume that you have read the associated passage, or at least don't mind spoilers. Naturally, we also want you to be kind to yourselves, one another, and the creators of the worlds that we love exploring. And then, of course, say it with me. We are in no way affiliated with N.K. Jemison or her publisher, Orbit Books. All right, and now it's time to get into our book discussion. We lead things off with Chapter 6, the interdimensional art critic, Dr. White, with another visit to Bronca and the Bronx Art Center. Oh boy. So our cast of characters here are Bronca, Jess, who was the experimental theater director we met last time, Yijing, who is, well, sort of Bronca's favorite friend of me. Her foil of sorts. And then we've got Feniza, who's the youngest member of their staff. She's from Jersey City. She's young. She's half Portuguese, half black, and also is very online savvy. And then we have our antagonists, the alt artists, who are a group of basically 4chan provocateurs who try to attack Bronca and the city with some eldritch artwork. I have to say, the way that the enemy is portrayed in this book, the antagonists, they're just so well done and so uniquely done. I don't think I've read any other works where the weapon of choice is almost like a sentient, malevolent painting. Yeah, they use this painting called The Dangerous Mental Machines as a way to try and trap Bronca. She's saved here by two people, Veniza and Yijing. Veniza, who is also strangely affected by the painting, which is something that will, I think, bear fruit later on. Pay attention to that. And then there's also Yijing, who recognizes that this is how H.P. Lovecraft referred to Asian people. It was his way of dehumanizing them, because this will not let you forget that as much fun as Tentacles and Cthulhu are, H.P. Lovecraft was a virulent racist. Yeah... No two ways about it, and I think it's something that everyone who enjoys Lovecraft's writing has to reconcile at some point. You have to recognize that, yeah, there's a reason that his works are not the most welcoming, and part of it is they are things where he viewed literally any non-white people as subhuman. What were his views on women? He didn't. Yeah. <laughs> 
I gotta say though, you said anyone who reads Lovecraft has to reconcile that within themselves. I'm gonna put it out there. There are going to be people who don't see that as bad, wrong, awful, abhorrent, disgusting, what have you. And these are the same people who watch a show like The Boys and don't realize it's satire. Yeah. And I think our alt artists are examples of that. They kind of live to be edgelords and they're sitting there hanging out on 4chan all the time trying to provoke responses more than actually do anything meaningful. They really care more about the clicks and the views. They're a troll farm, essentially. So are you saying that Strawberry Man Bun is something akin to Homelander? Yeah. Yeah. All he cares about is getting people to respond. Although I'd say that there's actually something even more insidious about him than that. Like, he's definitely a bullshit artist. He strikes me as someone who uses ironic racism as a veil for actual sincere racism. You oftentimes see this where someone will make a terribly racist joke and they'll say, oh, this is just a joke. I was making fun of the racist, even as too many people see it as an endorsement. And there's a very real chance that if that's all that someone is relying on, they're actually secretly enjoying that part too. Racism, homophobia, what have you. One thing that I have noticed is kind of common in a lot of books, a lot of media, a lot of narratives is putting that massive lampshade on the person we're meant to hate. It happened to him in The Name of the Wind, where he's a sexist asshole. And then we even see it in things that are much more wholesome media, like Heartstopper, where the person that we're meant to dislike is pretty much over-the-top homophobic and laughs it off as, oh, I'm not being homophobic. You know it's a joke. Yeah, that sort of, oh, this is just for the lulls. I don't really believe any of that. But I also don't mind hurting people for the sake of the lulls. Mm-hmm. One of the things I also notice here is they hide their bigotry under a veneer of irony and respectability with things like concern for the canon artists like Picasso or Gauguin, even as both of these famous male artists were pretty terrible to women and people of color. Picasso is famous for stealing many of his art styles from West African people, and Gauguin was something of a pedophile who also gave a whole bunch of brown girls chlamydia. Be careful of who your heroes are. And I think there's also respectable academia has a way of gussying up the images of certain people. And it's important to think about who those people actually were within the context of their time. It's important to think about people in the context of their time and also what those actions actually represented. Many times academic writing and discourse and criticism has a way of papering over the real people that actually did these things 
and just focusing completely on the art. I'd say when a textbook is given all of three pages to summarize the achievements and impact and life of an entire human being, the impulse to only show the good parts is strong. And depending on the views of the people writing the textbook, editing the textbook, in charge of distributing the textbook, you may or may not get an accurate picture based on that summary. Absolutely. That summary lacks a lot of context. It allows you to view people through the lens of just their high points. Christopher Columbus. Yep, exactly. I think the important takeaways from this interaction really are the people in charge of the art center, Bronca, Yijing, Jess, even Vanitza, all have high standards for the quality of art being shown in their gallery. And not only did this group, the alt artists, bring in something that is insanely racist, but it's also just bad. Like, say what you will about Lovecraft, but the reason that Lovecraft still is in our zeitgeist is because on one level he was able to craft a decent story. These people aren't even able to craft decent enough artwork to pretend to get over that hurdle of ironic racism. And it's offensive, not just personally, but also professionally, to the people in charge of the art center. And as someone who has experienced that offensive to my craft, where it might not be offensive to me personally kind of dichotomy, that in itself is enough when you have someone who's obstinate trying to Dunning-Kruger themselves into a higher position and using their whiteness in a environment that is non-white as like a trump card almost because if you say no to them they're just going to cry reverse racism and then gather a flock of violent white supremacists to threaten the lives and livelihoods of the people who are there trying to make a living trying to promote good art, trying to help their artists and residents. Because one of the things that we learn is that even as the center is effectively a creative space, for many people, it is also their de facto living space as well. And it's something that Bronca in particular is very protective of. Because it is a safe haven for many of them. And even as she knows that officially they are not people who live there, it's not zoned for residential, this is the only place that a lot of these people have, and so she takes that very seriously. It's not just an aesthetic calling for her, it's a moral calling. And so there is real reason to be afraid of these artists that have come in ostensibly for the racist lulls. 
Yeah, it's telling that Vanitza has to help everybody scrub their online profiles of any identifying information. In case they get doxxed. Yep, and then that's why they also have to issue warnings to the people who are in residence at the center. And so they stay late enough where Vanitza no longer has an easy way to get home. The transit is pretty much done for for the night, and Bronca offers to take her home. Bronca and Vanitza have a pretty sweet relationship. Bronca sees a little bit of herself. Vanitza represents the person she could have become if she'd grown up in a different world. She feels protective of her in sort of a big sister kind of way. But at the same time, she recognizes that Vanitza is plenty savvy in her own right, knows the world and knows how it works pretty well, and is generally a good egg. And Vanitza lives just outside of New York in Jersey City. Another character, just saying, that lives in Jersey City, that is in a property that I am falling in love with very quickly is, well, I already fell in love with because I love the comics, but it's Ms. Marvel. And it's so fun to look at the contrast of how it's portrayed in that show versus this book. Yes. So one of the things that is fascinating here is because Vanitza showed some sensitivity to the painting, the same as Bronca. This is where Bronca decides that she will take Vanitza into her confidence and tell her about what's going on. And Vanitza, to her credit, doesn't really bat an eye. She doesn't think that this is the weirdest shirt sure. she's ever dealt with in her life. There are a couple things that I noticed here. So first of all, when Bronca is looking for a place to demonstrate her connection to the city. She goes to this park that she spent a lot of time in growing up. When she was young, it was a whole bunch of brickyards. Not really very what we would think of as park-like, but it was space set aside. Now it's been gentrified. It's been turned into all these rolling lawns with benches and gardens and things like that. But it's pretty clear that it's not a space that is welcoming and relaxing for everyone because the police will hassle anyone who they think doesn't belong there. Namely, people of color who might be making the local white folk uncomfortable. If you ever find yourself being the local white folk that want to call the cops on the local not white folk... How about not? How about just smash your damn phone on the ground? It's a much better use of your time. But I think there is something important here when we see urban development plans or redevelopment plans. Who are these meant to attract? And who is supposed to feel comfortable here and at what cost to other people? Because oftentimes that cost is not negligible to marginalized communities. Same thing actually happens at Pride a lot. Pride tends to be welcoming to mainstream white queer people and does not always appear to be welcome and open for black and brown people. And it also tends to be a little bit ableist. So just one of those things to think about in how even if you think of yourself as someone who is not racist, who is welcoming, who is trying to provide a safe space for marginalized communities. 
it is a big responsibility and you do have to think of all parts of the marginalized communities and not just the ones that look like you. So one of the things that Branca calls out in the alt artistes is that they look like the sort of rich NIMBY types who live in the richer parts of the Bronx. They've been there for a long time, so they have a connection, but it's in that not in my backyard attitude. They are all for history, but they don't want anything ugly. They don't want to deal with the realities of poor people, that people have to have places to stay, to live. So it's easier to call the cops on someone that they presume is without a home in the park because they're blocking out the sight lines, they're leaving a mess or what have you. Instead of trying to provide actual housing solutions, they just are taking away whatever people have been able to cobble together. It's one thing to want a clean park where you don't have to deal with refuse or people camping out, but if you're not willing to do the work to give people an actual place to live, you're gonna have to accept that that's what's gonna happen. There cannot be any of this, of course we need to help these people who are being forced out of their homes because the respectable white people want to take over their space. But no, I don't want them to have a shelter within X amount of space of me, X amount of space of a school, X amount of space of any respectable anything. Honestly, what are you supposed to do? Send people to a farm upstate? <laughs> I think we often yeah. we oftentimes don't realize that there are solutions that could be involved and they require us to interrogate our understanding of what it means to live in a capitalist society. So it seems like when I say a farm upstate, it would be hyperbole. I shirt you not. One of the candidates for one of the public offices in our progressive area of Oregon literally suggested that the way to handle the homeless problem in Oregon was to create a compound in the middle of nowhere where people could basically be indentured servants working for the compound that we hide all of our undesirables in. Yeah, it was pretty grotesque. I'm glad we have at least enough sense for now to not let that be the solution. And yeah, I mean, homelessness is a real problem. And there are some very real root causes that we have to understand are baked into the way our society works. And unless we want to make changes, they're always going to be there. Unless we want to accept letting that abandoned mall turn into a homeless shelter and one that we don't exclude people from for substance abuse or being queer. Heck, I would actually go even further. Shelters are stopgap mechanisms. What they really should be doing is providing actual permanent residence for these people if they want it. I agree. You know, whether that is building tiny house villages or converting abandoned malls into effectively free apartment buildings for those who need a place to stay where they can have a permanent address if they so desire. You're going to see people camping out in parks, in freeway underpasses, and in all sorts of places that people might find unsightly. But if they don't have a place to stay, that's what you're going to get, because people have to live somewhere. And 
as a society, we owe them that much. So another thing that I thought was interesting here, and this is more of a cool thing as opposed to a critical thing, when Bronca is connecting with the city and communing with it, she falls into sort of the song and dance of her people. So the thing to remember is that she is Lenape. She is an indigenous person. She is neither white nor black. This is her ancestral home. And so she dances the powwow dances that she used to go to as a child. She dances for the clubs that she spent time at when she needed a safe space as a young person, when she was exploring the queer part of her identity. All of these connections are expressions of joy for her. So when she is able to flex, she does so proudly and with a little bit of cheekiness. I think that's pretty powerful there. She likes who she is. She knows she's not perfect, and she also knows she doesn't have to be. And we also get a bit of an explanation here about how this whole thing works. This whole thing being being an avatar of the city. What we get is sort of an explanation that falls onto the many worlds theory, which basically says that through time, at any place where there are multiple possible outcomes, all of those occur in different universes, but they're connected and they become stories. And those stories form this connective tissue. Once there are enough stories of a place, enough people go through there, enough stories form, that place hits critical mass in terms of its complexity and this emergent consciousness forms as it collapses in on itself and that becomes these avatars. And the city spans universes. Exactly. Each version of the city spawns these stories and we have access to them through books, through fiction, basically. Each time we read a story set in New York City, we are reading a story of a New York City that exists in a parallel universe. You get enough stories like this and it develops its own consciousness. I think that's kind of cool. I think that this is such an imaginative narrative, such an imaginative story. And it's not like many things I've read before. Even in alternate universe or urban fantasy or what have you. Yeah. It's got these weird, complex, metaphysical elements. It's got these biting social commentaries. And then it's also got these moments of hope in it. It's absolutely wonderful. So the one other thing to connect that we haven't really made the huge connection of, there's an event that did happen with the Avatar of New York battling the entity that we kind of glossed over and that's the destruction of the Williamsburg Bridge. That's a real world event that has supernatural causes where everyone knows that that happened but no one knows the real reason why or what actually happened and our characters throughout these couple of chapters all come to realize exactly why and what happened and make that connection that almost feels like if there was a conspiracy theorist out there, that kind of level of what in the ever-loving crap did you just say? 
it's a common trope in a lot of urban fantasy type things where anytime the fantastical appears to most people, they kind of gloss over it and they don't see it or they rationalize it. So the fantastical elements almost always exist as sort of this underworld that people can only catch glimpses of typically. And usually it's only protagonist characters that get to have the full view of it for one reason or another. And in this case, Vanitza makes that connection. She's able to conceptualize the enemy, the woman in white, the bathroom stall weirdness as the reason behind it. And that's one of the ways that we see that she is going to be more of a protagonist character than, let's say, Belle or Madison, who Manny was using and kind of bestowing awareness onto. Vanitza has her own awareness that hasn't been bestowed upon her in that same way. Next, we go to chapter seven, The Thing in Mrs. Yu's Pool. This is kind of a fun chapter where we get introduced to Padmini, the Queen Prakash, who is the avatar of queens. So she is a math genius who is getting an advanced degree in financial engineering while working as an intern at one of the large banking institutions downtown. In Manhattan. She's an immigrant from India. She lives with her parents' cousins. And she is struggling because she knows that she's there on a student visa. And as soon as that's up, she's going to need to get an H-1B to stay in the city. And she doesn't particularly like the work she does. She doesn't particularly like the company she works for. In fact, I'd go a step further and say she really, really dislikes the entire concept of what she's been working towards. But she also knows that this is the only way she'll be able to stay. And like a lot of people who come to the States from India, they're going to be sending money back home to help support their family who was unable to come to the States, who for one reason or the other is not able to have a visa, is not able to immigrate over. A lot of people that I know that work in the tech industry, yeah, they're paid a lot, but a lot of their money goes back home. Yeah, and they are supporting large families. The expectation is that once you get to the United States, you are going to be supporting your extended family. There's a lot of expectation around that. There's also the understanding that your job is a precarious thing because if you lose it, you lose that visa access and you have to return to India and then you can't support your family anymore. It's a very exploitative system in many ways and it puts people in a lot of tough positions where they're not really at liberty to take a moral stand against their employer. Now, we're introduced to Padmini when she is becoming aware of all of the supernatural shirt that's been going around, she sees the destruction of the Williamsburg Bridge. But her brain isn't able to truly comprehend the reality of that. She sees the tentacles destroy the bridge and think that it's some movie effect. She thinks they probably need to spend a little bit more in post on that one. 
which is funny because if you've ever seen any of the cinema from India, <laughs> any of the films from India, oh my goodness, watching Corridor Crew react to some of the Bollywood stuff is just chef's kiss. Anyway, but I find it interesting that the analytical character, the one that is all about math, that is all about doing these things for practical reasons and not for the love of what she's doing is also the one that's able to rationalize so quickly what she's seeing in front of her face. And it's also what allows her to recognize when she looks out her window at her neighbor's pool that there's something at the bottom of it. Something skin-like. Something wrong. Fundamentally wrong. It's also pretty cool how her powers manifest. So whereas Bronca's manifest through brute strength and Manny's manifest through money and Brooklyn's manifest through music, for Padmini, her powers manifest through math. So she's able to effectively see the mathematical structure of the world and then manipulate it. She was able to pretty much teleport with the math that she could do in her head. And then not only that, once she actually arrives on the scene to help the little boys who are playing around in the now dangerous pool, she's able to use math to change the fluid structure of the water so that the tentacle creature is unable to gain purchase on the kids and then banish the creature back from whence it came. So that's that connection that she's clearly trained. Her background informs how she manifests with the city. Can I also just say it is really cool to see a female character being portrayed as a math genius. Yeah. Well, and she's also kind of unassuming. She's generally known for being kind of the sweet kid that pretty much everyone has a very fond relationship with. We see that in the way that the people who live in her building react to her. The simple business of going up to the fourth floor where she lives is not a quick thing because everyone hears her coming and they poke their heads out to see how she's doing, to make sure she's okay. Like, offer her food, you know? <laughs> they are all part of a family for her, like this weird found family. And it's kind of a beautiful picture of the city. I think the biggest takeaways from this section are being able to look at the situation that they're going through, the city itself is going through because Manny and Brooklyn do show up after the heroic rescue. Mrs. Yu and Auntie Ashwarya, who is Pemini's parents' cousin, are not from the United States originally. Culturally, they have been raised in societies that believe a little bit more in the supernatural, that have more spiritual connections. So one of the things that I noticed here in particular is they were going for both pantheist and animist traditions. So you've got the pantheist tradition where there's sort of a god in everything, and the animist tradition where everything has a spirit in its own right. Is one of those, I'd, I'm cards on the table, completely ignorant, one of those more Buddhist... So animist is more Shintoist. Okay. Shintoist, Taoist. So 
this is something that you see where like there are these little sort of house spirits and house deities and very minor gods like they're gods of literally everything and they embody concepts and places and creatures and they're just like you and me in that they have wants needs desires and they do the best they can they fight for the things they care about and so when Manny and Brooklyn explain what's going on it's notable that Mrs. Yu and Ashwarya don't really have too much trouble coming to grips with this. This is just another patron god of a city. The fact that it's Pedmini is a little bit weird, but, but... It's the way it's weird that someone you know won the lottery. Right. It's not weird as in, well, that's not possible. It's weird as in, huh, it's you. It's improbable, but that's about it. And so both of them, both... Ashwarya and Mrs. Yu encourage the three boroughs to fight for themselves, to defend their turf. To defend one another and to take care of one another. Their response is, well, yeah, obviously you have to defend the city. This is your responsibility. Right. It's not, y'all are crazy. This is a framework that makes sense to them. And... We get a little bit more about Manny and Brooklyn as well that I think is pretty revealing. So Manny has this vision where he starts seeing himself as the city and he kind of tries to take on the role of the primary. And he effectively blacks out because it's out of his power. It's not something that is meant for him. And he gets cosmically slapped down for it. But this is also where we start seeing him fall in love with the primary. Yeah. He starts to realize that, no, I am not the primary, but I am going to help the primary. I am going to defend the primary with my life. And we also see him making peace with the person he used to be. I think my interpretation of him is he's kind of like Stringer Bell on the wire in that he presents this very cultured demeanor to most people. He's educated, he's intelligent, but he's also ruthless and he will hurt people to get what he wants, what he needs, if he thinks that's what the situation demands. He can be calculating, he can be manipulative if he needs to be. And this is a part of himself that he is kind of running away from. We find that him going to grad school is him attempting to turn his life around to build a new version of himself but he can't escape who he used to be. And even as he is becoming this new person as Manhattan, that part of him is still a part of him, and it's something that he can use as Manhattan in his quest to defend the primary, that it can find purpose in his love for the primary. The other thing is that when he kind of has that cosmic awakening... The thing that I took away from this is that even though the boroughs make up the city, they are not the city any more than an engine is a car. It's a part of a car, but it is not the car itself. So in trying to assume that role for everything, it ends up backfiring a bit on him there. It's hubris that he pays for, but it also is humbling for him. There is another little bit in here that's interesting to me, but I can understand it. 
So socially speaking, I cannot go up to somebody who I think might be mixed race and say, what are you? That's rude. It's awful. It's racist. It's just, no, I don't care. You don't do that. If somebody wants to tell you their heritage, fine. But you don't ask that question. That is a horrible, horrible thing to just go up and do. But within this conversation, we have Manny, who is, quote, so many shades of what are you brown? He responds, I'm just black. That's really what I am. That's all that it matters, which is true because he says that that is what he is. That is what he is. You just don't pry. But there's this acceptance of, hey, no one knows what I am. This is what I am. What are you? That is more socially acceptable amongst people who are in their own marginalized community. Now, I can't equate this very well with pretty much anything, except for within the queer community. Like, you can kind of do the same idea of a thing, where you're like, okay, I can't really tell. Are you gay? Are you pan? Are you ace? Are you something? Like, I can't tell by looking at you. Are you non-binary? What's your gender? What's your pronouns? Blah, 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 blah. Is a little more socially acceptable within the group, but it's not necessarily something that I would want someone who is straight to come up and ask me. I think there's also a bit here about the way that like in urban life, especially urban life in America, concepts about complex identity get flattened into white or black in many cases. Maybe brown. Maybe brown, but that's a relatively recent complexity that gets added on. So if you think back to the 19th century, 18th and 19th century, pretty much anyone who was not European was treated as just slave, chattel. Whether they were black, whether they're from Africa, whether they're from India, whether they were from you know, the United States as indigenous people, they were just not white and that was the important part of it. And it just got flattened into that. And so any discussions about where these people came from or who they were got flattened down into just the color of their skin. And meanwhile, when you look at people who are mixed race, if there is any non-white heritage in them, they get lumped into that group first. It is easier for them to claim blackness than it is to claim whiteness, even if they are 50-50 split. What I will also say, though, is that Manny is kind of that ambiguous if everyone just to not be as crass if everyone procreated with everybody else and there wasn't any worry about separating out by skin color or race probably all wind up that color that scares the living crap out of white conservative ash holes manny is the boogeyman to them and he's also in many ways a representation of the kind of culture that arises in New York City and Manhattan. Manhattan has Little Italy. It also has Chinatown. It also has Harlem. All of these are part of the culture of Manhattan. It makes for this unique blending of things. So 
the three boroughs decide that their best bet is to find some place safe to hole up for the night, and they elect to go to Brooklyn's place since she's got basically a safe house in her borough. She owns her own building, two townhomes, in fact. Just to touch on it, Pemini's presence in her apartment building in Queens gives it a sort of mystical protection spell, almost. And the same can be said about Manny's apartment building and Brooklyn's townhomes. It's kind of an armor of sorts. It's a fortress. That said, they figure that there's too much collateral damage at Manny's place or Pedmini's place. So it's probably best to go to Brooklyn's. So that sets us up for our interruption for this week. Once again, we see Sao Paulo late to the scene. He comes in and does a little bit of investigative work and recognizes exactly who Padmini is, recognizes her mathematical precision to fend off the enemy. And he has an interaction with Aishwarya and her husband. They know that Sao Paulo is one of these avatars. And so even if they don't strictly trust him, they know that he's doing the best he can for them. So they tell Sao Paulo that the other avatars are going to go try and find Bronx in the morning. So Sao Paulo resolves that he'll take care of Staten Island in the meantime. That's going to go over well. Sao Paulo is not perfect. He's got his own hubris in many ways. And, well, we'll see what happens with that. All I'm thinking of is obviously foreign. All right. Moving on to Chapter 8, No Sleep in or Near Brooklyn, which is a great little callback to the classic Beastie Boys song, because, yeah, famous Brooklynites. So it starts out as something of a reprieve. This is not something where there's an immediate threat. Manny and Brooklyn and Padmini are able to kind of take a load off. It's almost like we're going to go hang out in Brooklyn's spare house. Or a sleepover. They order Chinese food and Padmini brings some extra Indian food that her auntie packed for her. And they share and enjoy it. They kind of have a good time. There's a little bit of camaraderie that they share here. It's kind of fun. We also get a little bit of history about Brooklyn and her family. We learn that her father bought these townhomes back in the 60s when the land was cheaper and there was a lot of fear of immigrants. I mean, that still exists. He took advantage of it, though, because people were looking to sell just at any price to get out of the city. And even as property taxes went up, he made sure to pay on time. So they own these buildings outright. One of them is a more modern home that has been converted to be wheelchair accessible. And the other one is more traditional, that Brooklyn leases out on Airbnb or something like that to people coming into town who want to have a historical experience. Something to note is that she's kind of being forced to keep that one in a more historical state because she did do the modifications for her wheelchair-bound father in the other one. They can't live in this one because her father can't get around in it. It's tough to get around something as simple as a front porch that has a whole bunch of steps up to it. There's not an easy way to fix that. They'd have to take the stoop out. 
and replace it with a ground level entry. Or a ramp. It's just a simple fact. Sometimes it's easy to overly fetishize history. Sometimes history isn't as inclusive as we need it to be. Before Brooklyn goes to bed, she gets a phone call from her daughter who is in the next building over. And they have this really sweet exchange where Brooklyn is fondly remembering being her daughter's age and staring up at the night sky. And then Jojo also shares that moment with her of staring up at the night sky. It's peaceful for approximately 3.5 seconds. Yeah, there's a spider. There's an otherworldly Lovecraftian spider. Several of them, in fact. And they seem to be crawling towards the house. Specifically towards the house that Brooklyn's family is in. Because she figured that her residence would be safe. And so she didn't have to go in and essentially re-up the protection spell. But that was a mistake. And also because of the extensive modifications that she's made, it doesn't have the same connection to the land that the more traditional one has that makes the spell a little more resilient. So the spiders are able to invade and they kind of do this thing where they are as flat as they need to be to get through cracks in the walls or the door or the windows. And they start going after Jojo and Brooklyn's father. Fortunately, Brooklyn is able to realize what's going on here and lays claim to both buildings as places of power, as places of sanctuary, and drive them off. But there are some interesting things that I kind of wanted to talk about here. Again, we've seen that Brooklyn is connected to music. And I think one of the things that's notable is that her vision of Brooklyn isn't sort of this homogenous monolithic thing. It's all about remixes and mashups. So she hears her breath coming in ragged fear and then she realizes, oh, there's a backbeat there. And next thing you know, she's spitting out lyrics because she recognizes that beat. But she's remixing them. She's changing them around. She's mashing them up. And I think this is the way that she views her city, her borough. It's got this element of cultural syncretism where it's not a melting pot where everything becomes just this bland mishigas, even as it comes from different places. It maintains the unique flavors of each group of people that come to live there. Rather than being a soup pot or a blender, it's each dish stands on its own but makes a complete meal. It's a charcuterie board. I do like that. Yeah, each of those elements are unique. It is a sampling of all of these disparate elements that when brought together form something new and you can still recognize the distinctness within it. Instead of becoming homogenous, they become complementary. And I think that's really what you're seeing there. It's that difference between cultural syncretism versus cultural assimilation. And so that's how she embodies her burrow in her music. It's that remix and mashup. And I think that's something that's really cool. Another thing that I thought was interesting is the conversation that Brooklyn and Jojo have about education. 
And we get the sense that Jojo is not really impressed by her mother, the former hip hop star, but is very impressed by her mother, the city councilwoman. She's very interested in her education. She cares about her education and her achievement within it. In a way that stereotypes would tell you otherwise. Well, and what we also see is how, like, her favorite teacher effectively got priced out of teaching in her, in her district. And then got an offer to work for a private school for a larger amount of money so that she could actually afford something akin to her own apartment. I think this is a commentary on one of the ways that property values and housing prices end up disproportionately harming people of color. So as housing prices go up, teachers can't afford to live in their communities and they get priced out and forced to move further elsewhere, either to go work for someone who will pay for them, someone who will pay premium dollar for their services, which are vital and are worth it, or they're forced to go live much further out or they're forced to sacrifice and squeeze into tiny apartments with multiple roommates. And so we hear that Brooklyn is looking to try and build a housing program specifically for teachers so that they can afford to live on their own close to where they teach so that they can be part of their communities again. And we see that that's a cool idea but it's something that she's got to fight for. So another thing we notice here is that even though Brooklyn's power isn't derived from her name on the deed, doesn't mean that the enemy can't use the power of the law to force her from her stronghold. Because we learn at the end that the deeds to both buildings have been transferred into the name of the Better New York Foundation. And now Brooklyn and her family have received an eviction notice. Yeah, They've made up some sort of BS claim that Brooklyn has not paid all of her taxes on the buildings. And her father's already contacted the city and been told, you have a week to get out. That is such a nightmare. Yeah. Well, and it's one of those ways that gentrification oftentimes pushes out marginalized communities. It's not that, you know, someone has necessarily decided to go in and raise the values or whatever just by putting in a fancy donut shop or whatever. It's that donut shop goes in and then that raises the overall property values, which means that people who live in the area and who own their own property there still have to pay the property tax, which is based on the value assessment of where they live. And as those values go up, people get priced out of that. Like those property taxes are not negligible. And it can be the difference between being able to afford to live someplace and being priced out. And it ends up, like I say, disproportionately affecting people who are working hard to own their own place, but who come from a disadvantaged background. Yeah, I'm sure they absolutely would love to have a fancy donut place or a bougie ice cream shop or whatever but they also want to be able to afford to live where they are. Right. It can't be at the expense of their lives and livelihoods. Exactly. But we got to keep an eye on that 
Better New York Foundation. Yeah, that's pretty sketchy there. And it definitely calls back to a lot of these sort of gentrification organizations that oftentimes have sort of this veneer of utopianism about them. But there's always that question of better for who? Better for what? What's wrong with the current version? So something to keep in mind. So with that, I believe it's your turn to share a recommended thing of the week. Alrighty. So I'm squeaking this in just under the wire. I believe this is going to come out still in June. So we are still in Pride Month. And if you haven't figured it out by now, I'm queer. It's how I identify because it is easier to say that than it is to say panromantic, asexual, agender, gender flux to Timmy girl, what have you. Like, there's a host of things I could say that encompass my identity, but the easier one is just to say queer. So that's what I identify as. So if I can get queer representation in media or narratives or books or what have you, I'm all in. And there's a part of me that just really likes sweet, soft, adorableness. And so I have to recommend Heartstopper. The Netflix show, yes, but also just the comic. You can read the webcomic for free on Tumblr or Tapas. Alice Oseman did an amazing job of bringing this story of these two young boys who are, they're 14 and 16 at the beginning of the comic, and showing that queer representation does not have to be sexual in nature. We have a bisexual character and a gay character who go through that story of, oh my gosh, does he like me? I don't know if he likes me, combined with, I didn't know what my sexuality was until I realized that I was in love with or in like with another boy. And now I'm super confused. But I think that on top of that, it's it's not just that it's sweet. It's not just that it's wholesome. The way that she depicts communication between all the characters feels real, but also feels illustrative of healthy communication, healthy discussions. Like you and I have had discussions about watching The Flash and getting very, very frustrated at Barry Allen for the fact that he just will not talk to people. Like, right? Yeah. And also, he won't talk about what he won't talk about. It's fair to have things that you just don't want to talk about and won't talk about. Everybody's got their boundaries. But because he never actually says what those boundaries are, people assume that he's telling them everything there is to say. It's one thing to say, yeah, okay, I know he's not telling me everything because he's told me he's not telling me everything, right? <laughs> right, but there's also just like this barrier of, I can't tell you because if I told you, it would hurt you. And that is not healthy communication. I love you and I trust you, except for I don't trust you because I don't trust anyone. But I'm not telling you that I have trust issues. I'm just telling you that I'm protecting you. Bullshit. So instead of something where 
all of your problems are caused by you just won't talk to people. In this case, the story has a lot of instances of I need to talk to someone. I have these people I can talk with. I'm going to trust them and I'm going to talk with them and have open communication. And then if there's something that happens that's big, that someone has a hard time discussing with a family member or a loved one or a friend, the friends that know about the situation encourage and support the characters through discussing big topics with people they were afraid to talk to. And there's no pressure to go faster than they're ready for, like coming out. It also recognizes that coming out isn't just this one monolithic thing. You're constantly coming out. New person, you have the choice of whether or not you want to come out to them. Parent, both parents, each parent, family members, you don't have an obligation to tell them your sexuality. And the comic makes it very clear that there isn't like an obligation to come out. It's all gentle and it's all with consent. Or if something happens where someone who is meant to be an, an asshole outs another person or shares information about another person without their consent, it is very clear that that person did something wrong. Like you are told very clearly that that was incorrect behavior and inconsiderate and terrible. And then you deal with the ramifications of how that made the characters feel. I love the communication. I love the recognition of how to come to a good solution. I love the consent. I love the story. It's just wholesome and sweet and loving. It's loving between friends. It's loving between family. It doesn't shy away from characters who are in less than loving situations, but it shows how even if your family isn't so loving, your friendship group can be your support. Yeah, I noticed that when I watched the show with you, it took as much care to show the value of friendship and how important that can be in someone's life just as much as romance. Oftentimes in a romantic story, romance is the be-all, end-all. It is the ultimate expression of love. But if we look at our lives, it's so much more complex than that. Romance is just one of the types of love that we need to nurture ourselves. And there are multiple ways that people can find that love. It can be through romance, it can be through friendships, it can be through familial love. Some people don't need romance in their lives or want it. They get love in different ways, you know, whether that is through their family or their friends, but they still have those connections. And those are the things that are important. And it treats all of those as valuable. It doesn't demean one at the expense of the others or anything like that. Every type of love is celebrated. I love that part of it. I also love that when it came time to make the Netflix adaptation, the cast and the crew is all very representation oriented. Like we have 
gay kids playing gay kids. We have teenagers playing teenagers. We have trans people playing trans people. The cast and crew are all diverse and they encompass all aspects of gender, queerness, love. They're like a little family. And even with the behind the scenes vlogs where you can see that, you know, we've definitely got a focus on the two main characters who are Nick and Charlie. All of the characters are treated well, even ones that don't show up on screen very often. And the same thing is true for the characters in the comic. Like the characters are treated respectfully and not fetishized. There is a temptation almost to fetishize gay stories in comics or in fanfic. And this strays away from that so, so, so hard. It's all very sweet and it's all very gentle and loving without being like fake or saccharine or almost unrealistic. The show itself was geared toward a younger audience so that younger teenagers could find it to be accessible. There are shows definitely like Sex Education and other shows that do have queer representation and trans representation. I know Euphoria also has that, but Heartstopper is kind of chaste, but in a way that doesn't feel forced. It feels more accurate to my understanding of what high school was like than Sex Education would. As someone who I didn't even know that asexuality was a thing when I was in high school, but I never really had that like wolf with the hard eyes and the, the tongue rolling out and the, you know, wanting someone for their ability to have sex with me or what? I don't know. Like I never had that just like sexual draw to another person. And what I wanted was the romance. What I wanted was to be able to cuddle up on someone and to put my head on their shoulder and have them kind of look and go, what's going on? And you just go and say, I'm recharging. And I wanted the closeness and the, the care and the attention and the love and the romance. And that's really what I have wanted from a romantic relationship, even going forward as an adult, as a nearly 40 year old, I'm looking at that and going, oh, relationship goals. And it's just, it's so loving and so sweet. And what makes it even better to me is that as a form of representation, it has also helped a number of people come out to family members. People have used the scene of one of the characters coming out to talk to their own parents about themselves coming out, about their own sexuality, and found it to be a way of helping their parents understand them. And they're in the comments of the comic, there are just so many people that are like, I wish I could come out to my parents. I wish that I could have this kind of loving relationship. I want this kind of experience in my own life. And older fans of this property, I've heard over and over again, are just saying, I wish I had had this kind of representation when I was a kid. I wish that this had existed because 
I was so confused as a kid. You know, bi people, pan people, ace people. If you don't know that those are options, when you start feeling that way, you think that there's something wrong with you. I know that for me, I was always a little confused as to why everyone around me seemed to be like glomming on to other people and wanting to engage in sex. And I thought that people were just exaggerating, like that Hollywood was just exaggerating or whatnot. And that's something that's kind of common in a lot of ace people and a lot of arrow people. You get called a late bloomer. You get told that you're broken. You get told that you need to have your hormones checked. And no one explains to you that asexuality is a thing because it makes people, cis, straight people, uncomfortable if they do know about it. Allo people. And so they don't even bring it up if they do know anything about it. And if they don't know anything about it and you come out as ace, they're like, oh, you just haven't found the right person. Or you'll feel differently when you're older. And so you get pressured into doing things that you didn't want to do. Same thing with bi people. Like there's a lot of people who don't believe that bisexuality or pansexuality exists because they're like, well, you're just saying that you're gay without saying that you're gay. Or, oh my God, you're in a relationship with someone we view as the opposite gender of you. That means you're not gay. That means you're not bi. It just erases the identity. And the thing about this that I really love, like so, so love, is that the characters being portrayed in the romance are boys. We have someone who identifies as bi, who is a boy. A lot of times if someone comes out as bi, the person that you know that has come out as bi is a girl. And we tend to, as a society, fetishize by girls. And we also tend to feel disgust or not believe boys that are bi. And I can't tell you how important it is to have healthy communication represented, to have consent represented, to have multiple sexualities and gender identities represented and how much I wish that this had existed when I was younger. That's a good recommendation. For those of you who can't see, because this is an audio medium, Phoenix is right now crying a little bit, and so I am wiping, wiping off the cheeks. <laughs> but not the nose, because that's gross. Exactly. I don't want to touch snot. <laughs> All right, well... Before we wrap up completely, it is your turn to have a quote from the book. Yeah. So this is actually an exchange of quotes that I just thought were pretty fun. Is this another lecture about goals? You said you were going to stop lecturing me about goals. It's a lecture about stars and also goals. <laughs> <laughs> and that happened between Jojo and Brooklyn. Yeah, I thought that was just a really sweet little exchange and... You can see just the affection that's there between the two of them. I like the positive representation of family and motherhood in this. Well, and we see here Brooklyn feeling both this sense of maternal affection for her child, 
recognizing her child's boundaries, and also knowing that even as, yeah, she's promised that she's not going to have another goal lecture because honestly, Jojo is clearly smart and has her own goals and has absorbed all of these. That motherly instinct to encourage her child to keep dreaming, to keep doing, is never going to go away. So she finds other ways to provide these. And it's sort of a little sly, slightly wry observation in the narration. It made me smile. So that, I'd like to thank you for potting with me. I'd like to thank you for potting with me as well. And thank you for wrapping up quickly because I need to get a tissue. And thank you for listening to Tales from the Waystone. Join us next time on The Interlude We Became as we explore chapters 9 and 10 of The City We Became. We would like to thank our friend Shawnee Jank for our theme music. And many thanks to N.K. Jemison for making this fantastic world for us to explore. Audio production, editing, and social media coordination courtesy of me, Phoenix McCullough. And writing and project management courtesy of me, Will McCullough. If you would like to help support us we do have a Patreon, it's patreon.com slash waystonepod, where you can get things like our third, well, technically fourth, Sandman episode. We actually had two for book two that we spread out throughout last quarter, and then officially, like last week, we dropped the third book, and that is Dream Country. So if you like the Sandman and you really want to support us... There are now four episodes where we do a deep dive into that property over on our Patreon. We also have art that I am insanely late on and I want to apologize for. I've been kind of in an art block, but I am trying. With that, here's to one more day above the roses. To one more day above the roses. Ding! Ding. It also uses what famed Premier Premier League broadcaster all row. Yeah, I'm having a hard time talking.